You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We've got a huge show today and a lot to talk about. I haven't been around for a while. I was off on vacation, and then uh, the studio last time was hit with a storm, and the power was out. So I've had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to talk about today. And then, of course, we just had the presidential election. And I've been thinking long and hard about what I want to talk to you guys about. Originally, my show is going to be about the doctor-patient relationship. And what is it? When we say a doctor-patient relationship, what do, we, what do I mean? And what are we at risk of losing if we abandon the doctor-patient relationship and allow proponents of socialized medicine to implement Medicare for all? I've been an advocate for free market medicine for almost 30 years. I've been actively involved in making this argument publicly on radio, on TV, on blogs for about 15 years. And obviously, I've been in medicine for almost 30 years, and I feel, I believe that I have a lot of experience and a lot of perspective on the healthcare system, and a lot of it is based on the fact that I've run my own business, I've been bankrupt, I've been actually practicing medicine in every scenario you you could imagine. Early in my training, I spent time at the VA hospitals, which are largely government-run entities. I've worked at private hospitals, I've run my own business, and I really have a perspective about how do we preserve the doctor-patient relationship? and what works and what doesn't work in terms of us being able to get the type of health care that we need. I've been thinking about these things day and night for many, many years, and then COVID hit. And 2020 has really illustrated for me uh, the predicament, and I want to do my best to explain to you uh, what's going on. I also want to give you a little bit of encouragement that we still have an opportunity to save ourselves, and I also want to give you a piece of information about fighting. Regardless of what happens in the upcoming election, the fight is never over. This goes on forever, and it involves you educating yourselves. It involves you talking to family and friends and being able to convince people that you know and love of the validity of our argument. And again, we talk about it on this show all the time. This argument's going, been going on since, since Plato and before, and we're still having it. Now, When I talk about the doctor-patient relationship, it's a very special uh, relationship that's unlike any others. My patients are uh, people that I have a responsibility to educate, to treat, to give everything to help them. It's my job to be an investigator for them. My medicine is what I do. When they come in with needs and with questions, it's my job to present options to them. Often I have to get my own biases out of the way and think about issues from my patient's perspective. And what I mean is there are sometimes treatment options that might be right for my patient that I wouldn't want for myself. And I have to be able to filter through that. And most importantly, I'm not perfect. I know a lot of people uh, might argue with that. (laughs) 
I'm joking, but I'm not perfect. And as I'll often say to people, I am not everybody's doctor. My demeanor, my experiences, the way I look, all of these things don't necessarily make me the most comfortable doctor for other patients, which is why we can never allow a government-run socialized medicine structure where patients don't have the ability to talk to doctors and choose doctors that are right for them. The other thing we've seen in this COVID pandemic is this one-size-fits-all top-down approach that we're always talking about is one of the worst aspects of socialized medicine. And let's just talk about hydroxychloroquine for a second. And for those of you who are familiar with my show, you know that hydroxychloroquine is a medication that's been FDA approved for 65 years. It's one of the safest medications around. It's commonly used to treat uh, lupus and rheumatoid uh, arthritis disorders. It's also widely employed as prophylaxis for malaria. We give it to children, pregnant women, and all sorts of people uh, for, like I say, 65 years. It's been FDA approved, and it's incredibly safe. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, doctors like myself began doing research, as we always do when a new medical challenge arises, and it became clear that hydroxychloroquine was potentially effective at the treatment of COVID-19. Sadly, politics got involved, and there was a concerted effort by basically government and people who are in bed with government that were able to control things so that even to this day, even though hydroxychloroquine has significant strong evidence that it's effective in the treatment of COVID-19, a lot of physicians in certain hospital systems where it's prohibited are not even allowed to prescribe the medication. I actually just had a patient that I wanted to prescribe it for over the weekend, and one of the pharmacies that I called uh, for the patients said that they didn't feel comfortable prescribing this medication. Uh, so there's a lot of obstacles to being able to prescribe this medication. And there's still a lot of disinformation out there that have people believing that hydroxychloroquine is unsafe. And we know that a lot of this came about from fake studies. Yes, you heard me correctly. Fake studies that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, suggesting that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective at the treatment of COVID-19, but that it was somehow dangerous. Well, those studies had to be retracted two weeks after publication when they were caught using fake phony data. And, and funny Many doctors don't even know that this happened. Most people are not aware of it. The media doesn't seem to be interested in telling you that the number one and number two medical journals on planet Earth allowed fake data to be published to influence the the policy decisions that are going on in the middle of a pandemic that, that people will argue is still going on. If that doesn't convince you of the folly of allowing a government body to control our health care, I don't know what will. Now, when I first got into medicine, as I said, I've been in medicine for 28 years now. Um, I started medical school in 1992. I've been in private practice since 2001. And when I was coming up, the doctors that were leaving medicine at the time were telling me how far the profession of medicine had fallen in terms of the doctor-patient relationship. And I didn't really understand what they were talking about at that time, but I have seen it fall 
even more dramatically over the course of my career to the point where it's very difficult to take care of patients. And I can point to specific examples, tangible examples, at how the government-run healthcare system and government penetration into what's left of our private system has destroyed healthcare. Now, I don't want to bury the lead. We're in the middle of an election where the election of Donald Trump is going to allow the expansion of personalized health care programs, the rolling back of regulations, and hopefully the passing of new legislation that will promote free market solutions. And then on the other side, you have Joe Biden, who believes in Medicare for all, a one-size-fits-all, top-down, government-run health care plan, and he means to completely drive out of business private health care. Now, some of you might be fearful that the decision has already been made, and I'm going to talk a little bit about where we stand on the politics to let you know that the decision about who's going to win this presidency is still very much up in the air, and you still have the ability to influence this election uh, in very significant ways, and I'm going to get into that. But... When I first started in medicine as an orthopedic surgeon, uh, in order to practice, it's required that we get hospital privileges at hospitals where we, we practice. And it's, it's important and necessary if, um, if I'm seeing a patient and something serious happens, I need to be able to have a hospital system to take that patient to where I can operate on them. And I can also have access to other kinds of doctors, medical doctors and vascular doctors and heart doctors and kidney doctors and all sorts of things to be able to um, best take care of my patients. When I first started training, um, I would take call. And if I got a call in the middle of the night about a patient who had a hip fracture, which is a pretty common uh, situation, I would go and I would see that patient, usually personally. I would visit with them, visit with their family. I would talk about their injury. And then we would come up with a treatment plan. And a lot of times I would find out that that patient maybe had a relationship with another orthopedic surgeon. Maybe another orthopedic surgeon operated on the other hip last year. Well, It was common courtesy for me to pick up the phone, call the other orthopedic surgeon, the one who already had a relationship with this patient, and say, listen, I have Mrs. Jones here in the emergency room. You operated on her right hip last year. She's here with a broken left hip. Would you like to come and see her? And almost always the the doctor would say, absolutely. Thank you for, for what you've done. I'm on my way. Well, as government penetration started to get more and more, the reimbursement to doctors got less and less. And listen, I'm not here to talk about what doctors make. What I'm here to tell you is how these policies affect what happens. Um, You know, everybody says, I want free healthcare and free education, and that's great to say. It just doesn't happen. So as the reimbursement went down to the point where doing a hip fracture costs you money, that's basically what happens. When you talk about the care of a patient for a hip fracture and being reimbursed with government uh, reimbursement numbers, you actually lose money on taking care of that patient. You combine that with the increased bureaucracy in the hospital, the ability to even get an operating room and be able to get that patient um, cleared for surgery and do all of the things that are necessary 
to take care of that patient just to get them ready to go into the operating room. Well, it just became so onerous and so difficult that doctors eventually just said, you know what, it's just not even worth it and would say to the doctor calling them, you know what, I don't want to take care of that hip. And now it's gotten to the point where we don't call each other. I never, if I see a patient, they come in with an injury uh, and they were treated by another doctor, I would never make a call and say, hey, I've got your patient that you already have a relationship with uh, because it's just not done anymore. And that's the devastation of the doctor-patient relationship. I have another example. Um, I had a patient years ago who came to me with problems with his knee. And it's a very complicated situation, but I looked at the x-rays of his knee and it looked like he had a fantastic knee replacement. In fact, the surgeon who did his surgery up in New York appeared uh, to use the same equipment that I did. And um, it looked great, but the patient was three years out and was miserable. Knee was swollen all the time and miserable pain. And typically when we talk about these issues, um, the, the, the problems with total knees are either they're loose, uh, they're infected, or they're not put in properly. And so I went through the process, and um, everything looked fine to me. It looked like it was in perfectly. It did not appear to be loose. We did laboratory work and did the things necessary. did not appear to be infected. And so this person was really big, and I eventually – uh, just said, you know what, I can't find anything wrong, but let's go back to the operating room. Let me redo it and see if I can fix it. So I got in there. Everything seemed to be fine when I was doing the operation, and um, I, I redid it. And when I was done, it looked absolutely perfect, and I was very confident that the patient was going to do great. Well, patient wakes up, nothing obvious, but three months, he's still swollen and painful. He's miserable. And... Um, Eventually, it becomes obvious this is not working. You know, usually by three months, pe- people love their total knees. So this guy's hating it, and I can't find anything else going on. And so I thought to myself, well, you must be allergic to some of the metal or something in the implant. That's the only explanation. So I sent him to a metal aller, or I actually sent him to an allergist. That allergist called me and said, patient is uh, by we're able to do blood work and see that they're having an inflammatory response and this allergist tells me this patient is significantly uh, allergic to something and I said well listen I need more than that what is the substance they're allergic to because I need to come up with a, a solution that doesn't involve that substance so the allergist sent me to another person a meta a, a specifically a metal allergist and so I sent my patient there and the metal allergist uh, sends back his results and it says there's no sign of allergy here and I thought to myself there's no way this patient's issues um, have been managed well the joint looks well on x-ray and um, <clears throat> so um, I, I picked up the phone and I called the metal allergist and I, I explained the entire story to him and I said, listen, the other allergist who did the blood test tells me he's significantly allergic to something. The metal allergist says, well, I did a disc test, which is a skin test on his back. And uh, he says, you know, I put everything on there. He didn't react to anything. And so we started talking about it and we thought, well, let's do an ELISA test, which is a more specific and sensitive blood test. And... Um, 
So the metal allergist did this, and he calls me back and he says, my goodness, this person is deathly allergic to uh, zinc and zirconium and basically many of the substances that are in a knee replacement. And so we had our diagnosis. So I started doing research and um, discovered that there were no joint replacements available in the United States that didn't include this um, that it didn't include these elements. I did, however, find one joint that was uh, sold in Europe that uh, was close. And so I figured, well, let me go and get that done. And basically, the hospital tells me that the other joint is not FDA approved, uh, even though it's in wide use in Europe. Uh, and so I went through more than a year process of trying to get FDA approval just to use this one joint. Meanwhile, this patient is absolutely miserable. He's six foot four and a younger person, a former athlete, and um, really struggling. And I thought to myself, this system is really messed up. I'm a very educated person. I've been involved with this patient forever. I'm able to talk to them about risks and benefits, but yet we had this FDA system that is so bureaucratic and so unable to make unique adjustments to patients' um, unique needs that I was unable for more than a year to get this done. Well, eventually... I was able to get this implant in, and I and I revised his knee. Now, before I did it, though, I sent him to a major hospital. You know, we always talk about the Mayo Clinic and so on. You know, and and these places have um, they have cachet. You know, and the reason is they're big institutions. They usually do a lot of publishing. Um, those things then lead to money and power. And we're all conditioned to think if you go to these big hospital systems like the Mayo Clinic, you're getting, you know, magic treatment. I wanted to send this patient to a similar institution like that, and I did it for one reason. We were very off the beaten path, meaning this um, this whole issue was not normal. I mean, I you know, we do lots of joints replacements, joint replacements are some of the most successful surgeries you'll ever do. And this one just wasn't working out well. And I needed the patient to understand that we covered all their bases, that they had all their information just in case anything went wrong. They needed to understand we tried everything. And I remember when I suggested it, the patient looked at me and he goes, no, no, I don't, I don't need to do that. Uh, I trust you. And I said, this is not for you. This is for me. And so I sent him to this place that you would all know. I'm not going to say the name, but you would all know this place if I mentioned it. And uh, comes back to me after the visit, and we sit down, and we start talking about it. And he says to me, I asked him, I said, what'd they say? And he goes, honestly, the doctor came in for like two seconds, and he just said, there's nothing I can do for you, and, uh, and, and, and he left. And I said to myself, okay, that's what I thought was going to happen, and I'm going to talk to you about why it happened, and... Um, and we're going to discuss it. And he asked me, okay, doc, why did this happen? And I said, because you don't have a doctor-patient relationship there. With me, you have a doctor-patient relationship. And I go, let me just be perfectly honest with you. When I go through my clinic list and I see that your name's on it, that I'm going to be seeing you for a day, it, 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 it hurts me. It makes me sad. It makes me stressed. It makes me anxious. I don't want to see you. And he's like, well, he was kind of taken aback. What do you mean? And I go, listen. You are a lot of work for me. I have to study. I have to read. I have to make phone calls. Um, I have to fight with the hospital bureaucracy. I have to fight with the FDA bureaucracy. Um, 
but do you know why I do it? And he's like, no, why do you do it? And I said, because I like you and because I care about you and because I want you to get better and because I can do it. That's what a doctor-patient relationship is. When you went to that major institution, that doctor who just has them all lined up, you know, total joints waiting there, he's thinking to himself or she, I could do 10 joints in the time it's going to take me to do yours, and I don't want to do it. Um, and, And that's that. And this is what happens. The more government penetrates, the more government decides what patients see what doctors, and the less I, as a physician and other doctors, have to work to earn your trust, to earn your business, well, the less effort you're going to get. If you're employed in a hospital system as a physician, you basically get paid a salary. And whether you see 10 patients or whether you see 100 patients, you're going to get paid the same. And you might just say, well, you know, that's greed and all this kind of stuff. Listen, this is how human beings behave. This is what we do. People act in their own self-interest. And and the idea that somehow government is going to compel people to spend, in my case, 13 years of their lives studying in a way that I could never have studied if I didn't really want this. I mean, I'm telling you, when I was in medical school, I spent four years where I never let read medical textbooks less than four hours a day except for 12 days. 12 days in four years I didn't study. The rest of the time I was studying a minimum of four to eight hours a day and many times more than that, getting tested over and over again. Listen, this is not, this is not me, um, you know, I'm not asking for any sympathy or anything. I mean, God has blessed me beyond belief. I have the greatest job in the world. I was born to do this. I would do it uh, for nothing. I'm just saying that when somebody decides to do something in life, they make calculations because I have a family too. I have a wife. I have kids. People need things from me. I have expenses just like you do. And so when I judge how much time it's going to take me to do something, there's got to be a return on an investment. It's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. And when government says that you are owed health care, that it is your right, How can they do that when it means compelling somebody else to provide that service? That is slavery, and that's why government-run socialized medicine doesn't work. Because as the benefits to the provider go down, down, and down, they do less, less, and less. And let me just try and give you a little bit of an example. Um, I consider myself a good doctor. I feel that um, I'm in this business for the right reasons. I love this. I have friends, family, and friends of friends who you know who you are. They contact me on the weekends and after hours. They come to my house, and I absolutely love it. Um, and they'll always apologize. Gosh, I'm so sorry to to be uh, you know messing up your weekend or coming to your house after hours. And I always tell them, you know what? I was born to do this. I love doing it, and it's not a problem. Um, but... At some point, you feel like you're given enough. And I remember it was one time, I think it was Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. It was something like that. My daughter was, uh, I don't know, probably nine. And I I was at the hospital taking care of my patients. I came in the door. I literally just walked in the door, and my my phone went off. And they said, hey, you're not on call, but one of your patients has an injury, and they specifically called for you, and they want you to come in. And I looked at it, and I mean, I literally came in. I waved to the family, and I was like, I got to go. And I started to turn to walk out, and my daughter ran up, and she grabbed my leg, and she hugged my leg, and she said, no, Daddy, please don't go. And the only reason that I bring this up is there are 
um, your, your providers, your doctors, they're human beings too. And I have responsibilities. And when I decide to do one thing or another, um, I have to calculate. I have family. So if I'm going to do that one more hip, is there, it, do I go or do I stay with my daughter? And listen, I don't want to get off in the weeds about about this type of stuff. I just need you guys to understand that doctors are human beings and that people, what we do, we do what we are incentivized to do and we don't do what we're not incentivized to do. And I can show you specifically uh, what happens because in almost 30 years of medicine, I can tell you that I have been in VA systems where I've told you guys the story before where we went, there was hardly any cases being done. My partner and I decided to do all the work. We were uh, getting the patients from from the uh, holding area. We were putting them on the table, doing the surgery. If I needed any equipment, I scrubbed out and got it myself. Um, when I was done, I took the patient on the gurney. I took him to recovery. I came back in, got a mop, and started cleaning up the room, and we went up and we got the next patient. And by doing all this work, uh, we tripled the output. And then a few weeks later, we get called in by the head of the hospital at the VA system, and he basically threatened my partner and I that if we kept doing that, he was going to make sure we didn't get the fellowships that we want. And the point I'm trying to make here is even when you're in a situation like that, even if you're the good person and you're trying to do something good, the bureaucracy doesn't like it. Because when we work, we created work for people around us and they didn't like it and they complained up the chain of command and the person there just wanted harmony and peace. And so he told us, stop working. You're creating problems. And so they beat it out of us. My partner and I, as we said, I've said many times on the show, we went and spent the rest of the rotation in the call room watching Rudy on the cable system. So we have a situation here where um, the doctor-patient relationship is really in danger. It's been eroding for decades. Even before I came in, the doctor-patient relationship was eroding. And what I want to do is be able to identify it, to show it to you, to give you something tangible to understand what I'm talking about. And um, I have another patient um, a few weeks ago had a shoulder dislocation. Now, when I first got out, a shoulder dislocation is a pretty easy uh, injury to treat for the most part. Um, I usually can pop a shoulder in in a couple seconds with no anesthesia, usually if it's early. Um, and uh, I get a call. I'm on call, and I get a call. And uh, I wouldn't say late night, but it was probably nine o'clock in the in the evening. And I get a call, and they say we got a shoulder uh, dislocation, and it's irreducible, and uh, you need to come in and do it. And I'm thinking, okay, well that's unusual. Most emergency room doctors are well trained and able to. Um, reduce these shoulders, but as government penetration has come in, the the government entities make the decisions about where to cut costs, and they decide, you know what, you don't need a doctor in the emergency room, so they replace them with a PA who's a physician's assistant who's less well-trained, less experienced, and cheaper, but the other problem is they don't know how to reduce the shoulder. So they try all day long. And uh, they eventually call me. I come in at 9 o'clock, and I start talking to the woman, assessing the situation, and she looks at me, and she's crying, and she just says, Doc, I just can't take it anymore. I'm in so much pain. I just want this to end. I've been I've been here forever. I touched her shoulder, and I had it in in one second. And she was like, oh, my goodness, why didn't they call you before? And I said, yeah, why didn't they call you before? Why didn't they call me before? 
this is what happens when the government bureaucracy gets involved. You got a one size fits all. It's like going to the DMV. If you have a problem, who are you going to complain to? Well, that's what happens with your health care. If you have an issue with their way they're providing you your health care, who are you going to complain to? And one of the things about medicine that makes it really difficult is that as a patient, you don't know what normal is. You don't know what right is, you know? Um, I'll always, I'll, every now and then, I'll have a patient who will tell me, hey, listen, uh, you know, I went to the VA, and uh, I had a great experience, and uh, they treated me fantastic, and I, I'll ask them, how do you know? And they'll be, what are you talking about? I'm like, how do you know they treated you properly? And, um, you know, I have patients that come to see me and don't need anything either, and they just get better on their own, and it had nothing to do with me. Just because you have an anecdotally good experience somewhere that's not not a great place doesn't mean they're amazing. And I'm here to tell you that the quality of the healthcare that you get now compared to what you got 20 years ago is significantly damaged. And we are on the precipice of of having it become even worse. If they are able to implement Medicare for all, socialized medicine, we're going to get what they get in the United Kingdom and Canada and other places. And forget what you hear um, uh, from people that say that those places are great. They're not. They have massive uh, lines. Um, It takes forever to get just routine care. Um, The connected people get the great treatment. The unconnected people get physical therapy and and medicine. Um, their cancers are not addressed in a timely fashion, um, and it's just we've, we've illustrated it on this show many, many times. Socialized medicine is an abject failure, and it costs because as the bureaucracy grows and grows and grows, it takes more and more of our tax money, and it becomes more and more inefficient, and uh, we end up getting a, a worse and worse situation. I had a woman um, come into my clinic um the other day and she was absolutely sobbing uh she'd gotten in a car accident and she broke her legs really badly and i saw their wheeling i saw their wheeling her in a, a wheelchair into my office sobbing uncontrollably and i already knew what the problem was and uh i'm going to talk to you about about it when we come back we're going to take a short break and i'm going to uh continue with the doctor's lounge you're listening to me it's dr scott barber on america's web radio The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We were just talking about the doctor-patient relationship, and I was sharing a story of a woman who came to my office the other day. She was involved in a motor vehicle accident. She was actually a pedestrian that got hit by a car, and she had multiple uh, broken bones in her legs, and she had gone to the emergency room, and she was splinted up, and they were wheeling her into the office, and she was sobbing. I mean, absolutely sobbing. And this is days after her, her injury. And as they were bringing her back to get x-rays and get her set up so that I could come in and see her, I already knew what the problem was. The problem was that politics have gotten involved in our healthcare system, the so-called opioid crisis has made opioids taboo, and the politics of medicine has made it very difficult and scary for doctors to prescribe narcotics uh, for political reasons, not medical. And so because doctors are gun-shy about prescribing narcotics when people need them, they don't get enough. And it's really a frustrating thing for me. Um, there are a lot of uh, reasons why there's this so-called opioid crisis. It has a lot to do with open borders, which is a political issue, and fentanyl coming in across these borders, coming in from China. Uh, that's what's causing the problems. And politically, they're trying to pin it on doctors who are over-prescribing opioids. Now, I know that uh, people out there are going to say, no, I know somebody who over-prescribed and everything like that. That's true. You can always find anecdotal stories about misuse of anything in any profession among doctors usually. And most of the time when you see those fraud cases, it has to do with doctors involved in government-run payers like Medicaid. Um, free market healthcare is what holds doctors accountable because we face the discipline of failure every day, meaning it's my name on the door. Um, and if I don't produce and I don't provide, you're going to affect me. And so I go out of my way, whether, whether, whether you're right or wrong, I go out of my way to make sure that your experience is fantastic. Anyway, I come in, I talk to this woman. She shows me the medicine she's getting, and they gave her a woefully underdosed amount of, of hydrocodone to manage these miserable uh, injuries. And it has to do with this conditioning of this so-called opioid crisis, replacing doctors with less trained people, physicians, assistants, and nurse practitioners and others that don't have an understanding of how narcotics work and how to use them and what doses are are rational for certain injuries. I've been doing this 30 years. I've been working in trauma centers. I have an idea through practice of medicine what it takes for the various injuries. And this woman was just sadly well, well undertreated. And this is the issue with government-run healthcare: is you take the decision-making away from doctors and patients. Um, I gave this woman the appropriate amount of medicine. It immediately uh, helped her with her pain, and now we're moving on to to care for her injuries. Uh, but it's this is not a unique situation. This is happening all the time, and nobody's really willing to talk about it. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'll always tell people I'm not um, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I am pretty well educated. I have pretty good critical thinking skills, not because I'm necessarily the greatest critical thinker in the world. I've just have had 30 years of being a doctor, which is nothing but critical thinking. And people will tell you my personality type is I, I don't accept things that are presented to me. I like to be able to validate and verify things with my own mind, with my own critical thinking skills. And I was uh, 
I was trained that way by my father. My father used to tell me, just because it's in a book, don't believe it. And that stuck with me. My father used to always say, trust things that you can verify with your own eyes, with your own senses, and be skeptical of anything that you can't. And when you are skeptical, that you then need to be open-minded and be willing to entertain different options. And that's really what being a doctor is. Being a doctor is about risk assessment. When somebody comes in, I I feel like in the last uh, decade or two that the media and the way things are always presented in medicine, it's always there's the right answer and the wrong answer. And uh, there's, you know, during my entire career, there's always been these forces that are trying to get uh, government-run socialized medicine, and it's just been a constant fight to protect free market medicine. And this, this, it's easy to sell people on socialized medicine when you can use the term healthcare. Healthcare, socialized medicine, healthcare, free market, as if it's the same thing when it absolutely is not the same thing. The services and the options that are available to you, say, in the Canadian system, are not the same as what you get in this system. And they will always use statistics to try and argue that their system works better. They'll use a statistic like, well, they only spend um, you know, a certain amount of dollars per patient. But what they do is they cut out all the money that's spent on the bureaucracy, and they're basically lying to you using the statistics. And I know this because I have critical thinking skills, and I can see what I'm doing. And, you know, when people try to tell me about socialized medicine and how great it is, I'll just look at the basic um, situations that I've seen with my own eyes just in Canada. Number one, Barber Orthopedics, my, my orthopedic Uh, Practice has more MRI than some entire provinces in Canada, okay? So don't tell me that those provinces are able to deliver excellent health care to all their people when they don't even have as many MRI as one single practice in the United States. Number two, in this government-run socialized health care system where they ration care, the regular folks get get the uh, poor care, But if you're the connected elite, you get the great care. And that's never been more exemplified by the premier of Newfoundland who developed a heart condition that required surgery. uh, And he flew down to Miami to have that surgery because it wasn't even offered in Canada at the time. And when he was confronted about his seeming hypocrisy, being a proponent of socialized medicine, but yet going to Miami to get his heart surgery, he made the incredible statement, well, it's my health care and I can do what I want. Isn't that always the great situation from the elites? Always get what they need, but somehow you and I are are left wanting. Um, and so I, I kind of want to. I'm I'm trying to make the case here that uh, government-run healthcare is is a failure. It's basically what we do all the time. Uh, free market head, uh, medicine gives you the greatest quality care at the lowest price with the most choices, and it always promotes innovation. You need to look no further than LASIK surgery. It's basically a cash business. A decade or two ago, LASIK surgery was relatively expensive. Uh, you, you know, it wasn't as accessible as it is now. Today, LASIK surgery is performed on every corner. It's very cheap and safe. And that's because the free market was involved and competition has kept the prices down and also driven innovation. And I can just tell you in my own practice, uh, nothing illustrates it more. When, when I was 
um, I never was a hospital employee, but I was. I used to be a customer of the hospital, meaning I would go out and I would get my patients, earn them by delivering good care and wanting them to go out and tell their friends that I'm a good doctor. Other people would come see me. That's what I was trying to do. Um, then I would take them to the hospital, and at the time, I was a customer to the hospital. So if I brought patients there, that was beneficial to the hospital, and so they wanted to to treat me well. And so they would give me decent OR time, make sure that I had access to equipment, um, you know, make sure that, that I was happy, that my patients were happy, meaning when they hit the door, they, they, they engaged in this customer service that we all do to make patients feel wanted and welcome and all that kind of stuff that you do to earn business. Hospital systems used to do that. But as the reimbursement doc to doctors went down, down, and down through collusion between politicians, the hospital systems, and the insurance company with the specific purpose of driving doctors out of business so the doctors would then have to go become employed by the hospitals and therefore the doctor's fidelity is to the hospital and not to the patient, well, they didn't need me anymore. And so the service went right out the window. And so I started to see uh, less availability of equipment. It's much more difficult for me to to get OR time, uh, and they just generally um, don't treat me like a customer anymore. They treat me as if they couldn't care less if I ever came to the hospital again. Um, and this is a problem because we're now in a situation where 53% of doctors are now employed by hospital systems, and and. and as a result of that, it creates a perverse relationship where a doctor's fidelity is more to the hospital uh, than it is to, to the patient. And let me just talk about hydroxychloroquine. You had these fake phony studies that came out in the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, Right on the heels of those studies, the FDA revoked its emergency use authorization of hydroxychloroquine based on fake phony studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. That just that then gave these hospital systems the ability to tell their doctors, you will not prescribe hydroxychloroquine. Now, doctors, even if they know better, they say, listen, and I've talked to many of them, I would love to prescribe my patients hydroxychloroquine. You know, this potentially life-saving medication in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, but they're tell- being told, I'm not allowed to. What is going on right now? This is absolutely crazy. This is not medicine. This top-down, government-run, one-size-fits-all healthcare program doesn't care about you. I never realized that as much as I did until the COVID-19 pandemic, but they will literally, and I'm, being, I'm not being hyperbolic here, they will literally let you die because of the politics surrounding the hydroxychloroquine the, and this drug randesmavir. And you might ask yourself, why do they not want us to use hydroxychloroquine? What's the big deal? And that's an excellent question. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm also not going to ever be afraid to think critically in front of you guys. I, I listen to a lot of talk radio and other shows, um, podcasts and things like that. And, uh, you know, uh, these people, these outlets, they're always very careful about what they say because because uh, I don't know, you know, nobody wants to get labeled a conspiracy theorist. I guess they feel like it loses their credibility. Um, I don't care. I'm here to tell you guys the truth, and I don't mind thinking out loud. But I'm telling you, as a matter of fact, and I'm a good doctor. I've been around for a long time. I'm in good standing. I have a, a very successful practice. Um, I have a lot of experience. I'm confident in what I'm doing. I did what all doctors used to do, at least. 
when this pandemic came around, I had to figure out what was going on and how to protect my practice and how to protect my staff and how to protect my patients and myself and my family. So I started studying. And it was obvious to me very early on that hydroxychloroquine was potentially effective. And I thought to myself, okay, great. I also learned very on that the, they kept saying on the news the novel coronavirus uh, was this new and deadly virus. And I kept saying to myself, why do they keep saying the novel coronavirus? It's almost like they're trying to scare us that it's this just this new plague, when in fact, it is a novel coronavirus. It's a new one. But coronavirus, the family of viruses, is not new. And we understand coronaviruses very well. In fact, I happen to know off the top of my head that coronaviruses typically achieve herd immunity when they infect humans at about 20 to 30%. And you might say, well, why isn't everybody saying that? Well, I want to know that, too. Why are we not talking about that? The coronavirus can so easily jump from humans to a cat or something like that, that when herd immunity gets to be about 20 or 30 percent, the virus just jumps. And this is known, but it's not being shared. And I have been able to watch in real time this year our government make fake decisions, phony decisions that are based purely on politics. And I know this because I understand the medicine. I understand what's happening. So again, why would they not want us to prescribe hydroxychloroquine? Well, we see for political reasons that they were very, and this is retrospect, and this is me thinking out loud, but the Democrats who want this government-run socialized healthcare system were committed to having vote by mail. Um, And we'll get into why would they want vote by mail. Uh, But This COVID-19 pandemic was a very good uh, excuse to to lock the country down and to create the conditions where they could promote vote by mail and wouldn't get really any pushback. And if somebody like me said, listen, I think... uh, I think we could go vote in person, and I think this vote by mail is a bad idea. They could immediately look at me and call me a racist and a homophobe and an istophobic, phobophobic, phobophobe, and all that kind of stuff to shut me up. Uh, But it doesn't make any sense. Um, So if I was allowed to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, and by the way, I've been prescribing hydroxychloroquine for a long time for other reasons, but I've been prescribing it for COVID uh, since the pandemic started, and every single person that I've given it to has gotten better. Now, that I will not tell you as ironclad science that it's effective, but I will tell you it's anecdotal evidence. And in my view, based on other research I've done and using my own critical thinking skills and my own personal experience, it's been very effective. So again, why would they not want us to prescribe hydroxychloroquine? Well, could you just imagine that if people were out there and they were to get flu-like symptoms and be able to call up their friendly neighborhood doctor to call in a hydroxychloroquine script for him, like I have done many times over this pandemic, and then those people got better. They would never go to the doctor. They would never... they would never be able to be counted as a new case. They would never be able to go to the hospital for, um, you know, other reasons. And it would affect this ability for them to to drive up the numbers of COVID to justify these lockdowns and these mask mandates and to force us to vote by mail. Another reason is a drug called rendesmavir. We've known for decades, and I've talked about it on this show, and I will talk about it again in the future. I'm awfully, con- I'm often conflicted uh, uh, about big pharma. And you, I'm sure you have your own opinions about big pharma, but you know some people will demonize the pharmaceutical companies that they're only in it for the profit and this and that. And I, I, I've never really felt that way. I mean, pharmaceutical companies provide a great service to us, um, but. <clears throat> 
I also happen to know that pharmaceutical companies are known for going to the World Health Organization, bribing officials at the World Health Organization to promote weak studies, supporting a drug, and then they can take that drug and then sell it across the world to people. Um, I've heard people talk about... um, if we go back and we review all the studies, you know, everybody these days is on a statin drug for high cholesterol. Is that really necessary? And that's a debate for another day. But the point is the pharmaceutical companies have always been accused of having a vested interest for driving up the use of drugs. If the doctors are controlled by the hospitals, then the hospitals can mandate, hey, listen, if anybody comes in and they got high cholesterol, you have to put them on a statin drug. And then the pharmaceutical companies make money that way. And I've always known that was the case, and I've kind of kept it in the back of my head. And I didn't, I honestly didn't really think about it that much. But with COVID-19, I'm absolutely thinking about it because they had a drug called rendesmavir. Now, rendesmavir is a drug produced by a company called Gilead that is supposed to treat COVID-19, and they were doing a study on it, and partway, and the study was supposed to show a decrease in mortality. They got partway through this study, and they realized it wasn't going to show a decrease in mortality, so they changed the purpose of the study to show a decrease in hospital stay. And this one dubious study showed a slight decrease in hospital stay of patients receiving it. It cost $3,120 for a five-day dose, and it's paid for by the U.S. tax dollar. Uh, I can also tell you that at the last time I looked at this a month or two ago, all of the stores of rendesmavir have been purchased up by the United States government. So you can see this arrangement that um, that can be 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 in effect. Now, listen, you don't have to believe me about this rendesmavir, and I've not done um, you know I don't have ironclad evidence this is that this happened. But I'm also a critical thinker, and I'm just going to critically think out loud. The company Gilead, when Donald Trump mentioned that hydroxychloroquine might be effective at the treatment of um, COVID-19, the Gilead stock dropped $21 billion. Can you imagine? And then these fake phony studies were published in the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, the number one and two medical journals on the face of the earth. And I'm telling you as a doctor, no way that happened, that that got by their peer review process by mistake. Okay? That was a purposeful publish uh, publication of fake phony studies. Um the the um, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet had to retract those studies two weeks later uh, because they were caught using fake phony data. Now listen, they didn't retract the stories because the studies they were citing, the research they were saying was weak. It was made up. It was completely phony. I mean, the magnitude of this, but have you heard about this on the news? I mean, to me, this is one of the greatest stories of of 2020, and yet most doctors are not even aware that it happened, and we just seem to move along. Um, now, again, I'm continuing to do my research as this COVID-19 goes on. I realize that hydroxychloroquine is effective because I'm able to read 65 years of literature on it, and there's lots of compelling evidence out there that it's effective against COVID. There's definitely factual evidence. I mean, it's indisputable that it's safe, and we all know it was. How do I know that? Well, in 2019, there was no doctor that would do an EKG to see if somebody's heart was capable of taking um, 
hydroxychloroquine, they would have just prescribed the medicine. We used to prescribe it to, pre- we still do, pregnant women, um, children, people going overseas as prophylaxis for malaria, not even to treat a disease, but as prophylaxis for something that you may not even get. Um, this is utterly ridiculous. And again, I'm using my critical thinking skills. Why this attack on hydroxychloroquine? There has to be another compelling reason. And this seems compelling to me. $21 billion drop in stock. Uh, there's clearly a relationship there between Gilead and the government and Rendesmavir, clearly, because the government is buying it all up. We're still not using hydroxychloroquine widely. I am. But it's still made difficult because pharmacists, I just told you, are refusing to fill it. Do- uh, hospital systems are telling their employed doctors you can't prescribe it. Um, this is a joke, and it's dangerous. Um, we're still in the middle of this pandemic. They're still toying with lockdowns and mask mandates, which, by the way, have absolutely no basis in reality, no basis in science. This is just people shooting from the hip. And then let's get to the real meat of the story here. Um, I would would look at these governors like Governor Whitmer in Michigan and you look at Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo and and, uh, I forget what the guy's name is in Nevada, but they're, they're... Doing these executive orders, shutting down things. Governor Whitmer's telling you you can go to Home Depot, you can purchase this, but you can't produce, do art supplies. Just these willy-nilly things. Governor Whitmer's husband is busted trying to get his boat put in the lake when the governor shut it down. And he tries to tell the person putting the boat in, do you know who I am? I'm the governor's husband. And I'm looking at myself thinking, these people act as if they don't have to earn an election. Their behavior, and again, I'm just using my own critical thinking skills. They are doing things that the majority of us do not agree with and acting as if we don't need, um, we don't need your vote. How is this possible? How is it that Governor Whitmer and de Blasio, maybe the worst mayor in history, Governor Cuomo, who literally mandated that Patients infected with COVID be be accepted into nursing homes has literally the worst record of management of COVID-19 and yet is doing a book tour about how amazing his management of COVID-19 was. And where's the media? I, I'm just using critical thinking skills here. That I'm not saying anything that's in dispute. Governor Cuomo has the worst record for the management of COVID-19 of any governor in the sit in the state in the country. This is utterly ridiculous to me, and I have other information. Listen, I'm a doctor. When this thing first started, we talked about uh, two weeks to flatten the curve, right? Flatten the curve was all about making sure that so many people didn't get sick at one time that it overwhelmed the hospital system. It was never about controlling this viral disease because as scientists and doctors, we know we can't do that. We've been wanting to do that for a long time, but we're not able to do it. But suddenly in 2020, cloth masks, which by the way... I challenge any doctor out there to tell me about the utility of cloth masks before 2020. You know cloth masks don't work. That's a joke. And that right there should raise red flags. But yet where are the doctors in the streets raising their hands saying, hey, I don't think this cloth mask thing is legit. It almost seems like you're making this stuff up. And so I'm asking myself all along, why are these politicians behaving as if they don't need to earn our vote? And then suddenly... We watched the election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Donald Trump, whether you love him or hate him, you can at least admit 
He was having massive rallies. There were massive impromptu uh, Trump trains on the road, boat parades. There was a lot of enthusiasm for President Trump. Joe Biden literally didn't campaign, stayed in his basement the entire time. When he did have an event, um, it was always staged. There's the famous event where every single car at the event is a Jeep. Kind of weird, isn't it? Every single person drove up in a new Jeep. Um, he had these little circles on the ground, 10 circles around. He couldn't even fill those up. And if you looked closely, seven of the circles were filled with his staff members. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that um, Joe Biden was not creating any excitement. And if we look at the election results, Joe Biden underperformed Hillary Clinton everywhere, everywhere, except for these cities where we have unusual um, voting, where, uh, you know, we're talking about Philadelphia and Atlanta and um, Minneapolis and some of these other places um, where we know we're having trouble. Those are the only places where Joe Biden outperformed Hillary Clinton. Now, this is utterly ridiculous. And and so I'm just going to say it. We all know that there was a lot of voter fraud out there. Now, I'm not a professional radio guy or media guy or anything like that. I'm just a doctor who is 55 years old with life experiences that is just critically thinking. Um, Donald Trump was winning massively in the swing states, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, North Carolina, um, Georgia. And then suddenly the media stops. The media just stops counting. Uh, We're just not going to count anymore. We'll see ya. And then... Somewhere between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. in the morning, Joe Biden miraculously makes up these massive deficits. I think in Pennsylvania, he was down 700,000 votes. And then suddenly, the mail-in ballots. Remember when we were talking about why would anybody want to prevent the use of hydroxychloroquine? Why would anybody want to promote these lockdowns um, and and be promoting mail-in ballots? Well, we just started seeing them bringing in truckloads. It's all over social media, truckloads of ballots, always 100% for Biden. And we just watched Trump's lead in all of these different swing states decrease, decrease, decrease. All the while, um, places like North Carolina and Alaska, where they must have had uh, that sloth from Zootopia, you know, the one at the DMV moving really slowly, doing the counts because they were refusing to call North Carolina and Alaska for the president. Again, I'm just thinking critically out here. Now, the other thing I would tell you is I'm an educated person. I knew about Dominion like a year ago. Dominion, oh, you haven't heard of that? So Dominion is the company that's connected to the Clinton Foundation, that is connected to Nancy Pelosi, that is the software company that provided the ballot counting machines in 28 states. Isn't that weird? Uh, Scorecard, have you heard of this app? Uh, General McInerney talked about Scorecard as this app that has been switching votes from uh, Trump to Biden. Some of them have been caught on TV where 19,300 votes or whatever it was immediately switches on camera while it's on TV from Trump to Biden. And so you can see how this mail-in fraud and this dubious count and, you know, places like Florida, they had two time zones. They counted their, their stuff up right away. But yet... You know, Arizona, Fox News comes out and they call it for 
Joe Biden, and here we are days and days and days later, we still don't know who won Arizona. It looks like Trump could win. So even Fox News, who I'm always told is a shill for the president, um, has has voted. Now, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, is a shill for the president, uh, actively promoted Joe Biden by calling erroneously Arizona for Joe Biden. Now, we're thinking out loud here. Um, and uh, I want you guys to know that uh, there's still things you can do, and I want to leave you guys on a good note. First of all, conservatives control the um, the Supreme Court. We have a 5-4 majority, not 6-3. John Roberts has not voted with Republicans on any major issue. Uh, we have a 5-4 majority. In the House of Representatives, um, we control in uh, in terms of electoral college counting 26 to 23, so that's good. Um and we have a domination of the state's legislatures. So if the vote tally doesn't come out outright, um, we still have great opportunity to vote. Now, what you need to do is uh, you need to demand, especially if you live in a swing state, that we have an audit of the vote, hand count and audit, um, and we will see what's going on with this election. Hang in there. We still have an opportunity to promote socialized, or sorry, to promote free market health care and oppose socialized medicine. And we're going to talk more about it on the Doctors Lounge when I see you guys next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.